Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks and good morning from Americus, Georgia. That is Sumter County, Georgia. It is spring. It is full-blown spring here. I spent the day yesterday on the mower just lopping off the tops of weeds basically in the pasture. Um, you know, doing battle with the endless profusion of life. That you know, I don't hate the weeds. They're just doing the same thing we're doing. Everybody's just trying to reproduce, multiply and take over the world, you know? Every living thing in, in some way is trying to do that, but they're always thwarted by competing forces. You know, the 10 or 15 individuals on the internet all competing for online banjo lessons or mandolin lessons, they're all doing the same thing. They're creating this profusion of stuff and competing with each other, but doesn't mean they hate each other, you know. They don't hate each other, they're just trying to do the maximum they're, they're following nature their nature is to spread I, I was looking at this poison ivy vine that came up by the back porch and this thing just you know keeps spreading and it's it keeps sending out little tendrils and it's like going up the dogwood tree and but it is my duty as the homeowner to uh, come along and hack that thing and I took the machete and chopped it off right at the base i did not grab it or touch it I'm not that stupid, ignorant, nescient, but, uh, you know, I'm holding out for my little piece of turf. This is my back porch and you know, you're not going to come in it. And the poison ivy's like, that's what you think I'm taking over. I, you, you deal with the same thing when the ants come into your kitchen and they begin to colonize your house, you know? This is, it's, this is just normal. This is nature. This is the, the natural order of the universe. You know, I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't expect to take over the world, but you know, I am trying, you know, and you are too. I think it's good to get philosophical at times. And you know, there's a, there's a thing that I see in so many people that they, they, they don't really have a philosophy or they think they don't have a philosophy. They think philosophy is like a section in the library or this thing some guy at some university does. He's a philosopher. I studied philosophy. I have a PhD in philosophy from Cambridge. <laughs> you know, but what they don't realize is everybody's a philosopher. You have a philosophy. You just may not have thought about it much and, you know, crystallized it into any kind of statement of your beliefs or anything, but you got a philosophy. You definitely have a philosophy and I do. And I probably spend more time, you know, figuring out how to state that than, than the average person. Like yesterday when I spent six hours riding around on a lawnmower, I had plenty of time to think about my philosophy <laughs> regarding weeds and the profusion of life on this planet and stuff like that. Anyway, today we're going to be a little short because my son Jackson uh, auditioned for a singing group. 
And you know I love singing, because if I love bluegrass, I love singing. Because singing is a big part of bluegrass. It's not a bluegrass. He didn't audition for a bluegrass group. He had auditioned for a singing a choir, a children's choir, called Voices of the Valley. And that would be the Chattahoochee River Valley. The Chattahoochee runs out of, I think it starts up there about Helen, Georgia. And works its way out of the mountains. It passes through the, uh, around on the, the Chattahoochee comes on down through between Cobb and Fulton County at there at Atlanta. It's on the west side of Atlanta. It's gotten pretty big by that point. And then it meanders on down to Columbus, Georgia. And it's dammed up and forms West Point Reservoir or Lake just north of like around LaGrange. And it continues and then from that point on it forms the boundary between the state of Georgia and the state of Alabama and it continues on and it is from Columbus southward becomes the boundary between Alabama and Georgia that's the Chattahoochee River now it eventually joins with the Flint River which also comes out of North Georgia the Flint begins as a drainage ditch at the Atlanta airport I have stood there at the culvert looking at the start of the Flint River. And one time, I'll tell you, this is kind of a funny story. Uh, we used to go canoeing on the Flint. And one time we got a, a gang of guys from work. We're all going to go down there and rent canoes and canoe this section of the Flint River down around Gay, Georgia. Um, there's a, there's about a 15 mile section of the river that there's, you know, a service that'll, you know, cart you up, you know, let you park your cars and carry you up and you do a two day trip down through, I'm trying to remember a Spruill bluff. And anyway, so I've done this little canoeing trip a couple of times and a bunch of guys from work say, Hey, let's all go down. Let's go down and canoe that. So we did. Well, the weekend that we went there was a, a lady, and I don't know anything about the person personally, who there was there was big rains and a lot of, you know, when you're up at the Atlanta airport and I-285 going around the super loop, going around the airport, there's a lot of runoff because of so much pavement, you know, so much asphalt and pavement and parking lots and building roofs and stuff like this, that when you get a rain, you know, those storm drains carry lots of water. Well, that water all in that particular spot of the world goes into this drainage system, which is the start of the Flint River. It's just a little branch, just a little crick. Or cr we don't say crick down here. Those guys in Indiana might, but creek, a little branch. But it was running. I mean, all that runoff from the you know College Park, uh, you know, Hapeville and the Atlanta airport was running off and being directed into this, what, what would be the beginning of the Flint river? Well, there's a lady. Well, she fell in, she fell in and she got washed down the culvert and gone, just gone. Went down the pipe, you know, probably like through a 48 inch concrete culvert. She's gone. Well, this occurred 
I think the day before or a couple of days before we went on our little canoeing trip. And we kind of chose that period of time because you want to do it in the spring when you've been getting good rains and you got good water flow. Because if you try that thing in August, if you try to canoe that particular route in August, you're going to spend half of your time knee deep in water, lifting your canoe over rocks. When you get down to Spruill Bluff or the, there's several areas that are shoals and you just going to be, you know, heaving your canoe over the rocks and then you can paddle for 50 yards and then you got to get out and lift it, you know, but if you do it at the right time when there's plenty of water flow, you just drift right over them. You, you, your paddle feels the rocks and you see them, but you're, you're up a, a foot or so above them. So that was the time period that we decided to do that run. And of course the news reports were out that this lady had fallen in and was washed away and somewhere down on the Flint river and they're searching for her body. So we made special t-shirts for the canoeing trip that I forget exactly what it says, but it said something about a search and recovery team or something, because basically we're going to be on the, on the lookout. We're going to try to find this lady. Well, we didn't find her. Thank goodness. I really didn't want to find a bloated, you know, drowned woman on our trip. We, we did not ever see her. And I think they did find her up in Riverdale or something, you know, hung up on a route or something. But, you know, you got to be careful around flowing water. That stuff is more powerful than it looks. But anyway, the Flint just keeps on coming on down and eventually joins with the Chattahoochee just as you reach Florida and they come together and form the Apalachicola River, which then goes on down to the Gulf of Mexico and both rivers have combined. It's really wide down there, wide, flat and slow. And I'm sure it becomes brackish as you get to the Gulf of Mexico. And you know, that's the place if you want to go down there and catch sea trout and do all that kind of stuff, crabs and shrimp and whatever. Anyway, I completely lost track of why. Oh yeah. Uh, Voices of the Valley. That's the Chattahoochee river Valley. So Jackson is singing in a concert this evening. He looks so good. I, I, should, I will post a couple of pictures and possibly even some video. If, if I'm, somebody's surely going to take some video and I'll put that on the show notes page for today's episode. I've gone to some of the rehearsals and I'm pretty moved by music sometimes. And I know there's the element of you're extra moved because your offspring is part of it. You know, it's a, I, I know that is true that you might not get the same feeling that I get and shouldn't, you shouldn't have the same feeling, but I'm very impressed. Sometimes I wonder where he got this talent. His talent is just, you know, sometimes I, I try to credit myself. I think, well, it's all the, all the musical things that I do around the house and, uh, you know, handing him a banjo and, you know, playing this record and, you know, playing the banjo to mom's stomach when he was, before he was born, <laughs> that kind of stupid stuff. But I don't know. I don't know where it comes from. 
Maybe it's a generational hopping thing where, you know, this is, has more to do with my mother and her musical abilities than it has anything to do with me. I don't know. But the kid uh, just amazed me. Uh, at the end of this episode, he is, he is driven, just driven by the love of music in ways that, that I have been, but it's been, my thing has always been bluegrass music and more so the performing side of it. You know, the audience reaction and getting a laugh and, you know, uh, he is, he's got some stuff. I, I don't know. He, I've, I've said so many times that you can't, you know, a teacher can show you, but a teacher can't teach you that you have to teach yourself. And he has taught himself so much stuff that I don't even know what he's doing anymore. And he's 10. But he, he's gotten into composing because I guess he discovered that to play an instrument requires a, you know, a tremendous amount of work. But to program a computer to play that same part doesn't require as much work. I mean, that's the secret of garage band, you know, you pick a guitar blues riff and copy and paste it several times and stick a cool bass line on there. And wow, I made some music. And he, he tinkered with garage band when he was five and six, he messed around with that, but then he wanted to control the actual notes and the music. So he got into composing using Sibelius, which thank you, Bert Casey. I've, I've had a, a running copy of Sibelius ever since I began my relationship way back with Watch and Learn because they wanted me to create my own mandolin tablature and notation and banjo tablature and notation for the materials that I was producing for them. So he's like, hey, we'll, uh, we'll put your, give you a serial numbered copy and you know, you're on our list and you have a valid copy of Sibelius, which is one of the most phenomenal it is probably the most advanced music notation software in existence. Well, I had it. So Jackson started just monkeying around with it. I didn't really show him much. I showed him a couple things. But he shows me stuff now. He knows more about that software because I just barely scratched the surface. I used it as a tool. You know, I need to you know, pry this board off of the barn. So what do I need? I need a crowbar. Okay. That's all I know. You know, how to make the mandolin tablature for, you know, the whatever. Not him. He actually looked at the menus and went, huh, wonder what that means. What is this? What is that? You know, and he figured it out. And I've, I have had to ask him several times. I'm like, Jackson, this thing keeps putting in accidentals. How do I, how do I stop that? You know, He's like, well, you changed the key signature. You know, like, could you show me how to do it, son? <laughs> anyway, I'm going to close this episode with a little piece he did. I swear, I picked him up at school one day and had his computer in the car. And he's banging the back and I can, I can hear him like... I hear sounds coming out of the back seat and we're coming home. And about the time we got home, he goes, listen to this. Listen to this motif I created. And he played like 12 bars of something he was working on. I'm like, wow, that, that, that's pretty good, Jackson. Then he went in the house. He spent about three hours working on it some more. 
And then the following day, because we were on spring break, come well, we had the weekend and then spring break. I guess it was about Monday. That kid spent the entire day parked in front of that computer working on his piece. And I'm just going to, I'm going to talk about a couple other things, but I'm going to play you this piece. I don't know. I don't know how he does this. I, honest to God, I don't, do not know. And, and there's an element of proud Papa, you know, there, there is, and I, and I should be proud, but you know what the truth is? He doesn't know how he's doing it. He doesn't even know how he's doing it. I listen to the baseline in this thing, and I hope that it comes across well in this podcast because I do rip it down to mono and you know, the audio quality has been degraded a good bit for bandwidth reasons. This isn't the same as a full bore stereo, high quality AIFF file, which maybe I'll post that on the show notes page too. If you want to get, you know, the highest quality of this thing, just go to, you know, the routine, go to the show notes for this episode and I'll, I'll put it where you can download the un unmolested version of the file. But at the end of this thing, I'm just going to play this little thing. And here's what I think he's doing. I think this is important to you as a musician is that so much of the music we try to play, we're trying to do what someone else told us to do. The book, the video, and there's de no denying the value of that for learning. But when it comes time to play, you got to play what you feel. And what he's doing, he has just shortcutted. He's gone straight to what he feels. I tried to sit him down one time and explain to him about chords, chord progressions. And we use the little music theory section from Mandolin Masterclass. I'm like, when you can do these six self-tests and correctly, you know, build a major chord and you know what a six chord is and you know what a an arpeggio is and you know what a one, four, or five is, you know, then you'll be more conversant and, you know, it'll help your understanding of what you're doing. So we labored through this thing, but what I'm hearing is he's writing what he thinks sounds good and then i hear it and i i hear oh he's going from a one to a four a one to a four and then there's a five and i'm thinking wow that that that's that's very musical he's not thinking of it that way he, he's beginning to and i worry i worry that too much theoretical instruction will harm this. And I hope that it doesn't. I hope that it enhances this because there's enough robotic players following enough rules in this world. And, you know, I don't think Earl was following rules when he learned Reuben. You know, it's like you have to sit on the fence with this stuff. Knowledge is important and it can expand your abilities and your you know, the musical creations that you make, but it can also lock you down into, in, into a cage. 
you think, oh, well, you know, I've, I can't play that note because, uh, you know, uh, parallel fifths and, well, maybe you'd like parallel fifths, you know? I mean, now for certain styles, I admit there are rules. There's a set of rules for bluegrass and you violate those rules. You ain't playing bluegrass in my book, but there's some flexibility. It is a, the, the cages that we put ourselves in called styles have bars, but the bars are made of rubber. You can, you can bounce off the walls a little bit, but if you just bust down the walls, we have no styles and it's hard to categorize things in our mind anymore. I like, I don't know what I'm hearing. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to categorize that. And humans like to put things in little boxes and little category, you know, categories like, oh, well, that's rap. Oh, that, uh, hmm, I think that's classical, you know, that, that over there is bluegrass, you know. So it's, it's this constant war between coloring inside the lines and free expression. And I don't think either one of them should win. The, the mark of a good musician is how they can bend the boundaries yet stay within them. Hopefully that makes sense. Anyway, so at the close of this, I'll play a little bit of, and Jackson wrote this as a, uh, two kids in his school, in his class. I don't tell you the whole story, but they sent him some lyrics and said, we wrote this song can you set it to music? So you're, what you're going to hear does not have the lyrics, but they just gave him some lyrics and he was using the lyrics sort of as his structure for the song. And I, I hope that you kind of hear a singing quality in what he wrote. It's, it's pretty good. I think now there are some little places toward the end where he was thinking more of the film score and there's going to be a particular scene right here and a sound effect and, you know, he was picturing the movie in his mind because they're, they're doing a, a movie basically. Um, but this thing just flows, it flows and it flows beautifully. And I hope that, you know, his little creation is some inspiration to you. Okay. Last thing I want to talk about before I close this one out, because I'm already getting too long. I'm 22 minutes at this point. I meant to be 10 um, is just a little quick update, uh, that sometimes it's good to wrap up things and, and tackle things that you've been putting off. I had a mandola. I may have talked about this, a mandola, a Gibson, uh, it's about a night. I think it's a 1909 H2. I don't have it in front of me here with the handle inlaid tuners and, you know, oval hole mandolin mandola that I played in the Atlanta mandolin society orchestra back in 98, 99, 2000, 2001. And I moved over to mando cello and this thing never played in tune. It never played in tune. I just, it, you could, you could labor over the tuning monkey with the bridge. You could never get this thing to play in tune. Well, after kind of figured out eventually that, well, that's because the frets were in the wrong place. 
Whoever laid out that fretboard, and it had been redone, restored by someone, someone unknown to me, prior to me owning it. And when I really got to looking at it, it's no wonder it didn't play in tune. It did. It is. These frets look like a chimpanzee laid them out. I mean, good Lord, when I really got to looking at them, you know, as you go up towards from the nut towards the bridge, the spacing should get smaller and smaller. And then all of a sudden there'd be one that was like bigger than the one before. Like what in the world? So anyway, replace the fingerboard. I'm like, good God almighty. I know what has to be done. So I removed the fingerboard. Fretboard. Sorry, you fretboard journal people. Everybody gets all upset when you call it a fingerboard. Uh, anyway, took it off. Took it off. Had my buddy Mark Gresham um, cut me a new ebony fretboard for that beast. Told him the scale length and he he saw the fret slots and sent me a rectangular ebony board about a quarter inch thick. Way too thick. And I tried planing on that ebony and that wasn't working. So uh, took it over here to this guy here in Americas. Um, had him run it through his thickness sander. Todd. Thanks, Todd. Todd run it through, ran it through his thickness sander and took it down to the uh, thickness that I required. And I fretted that board and profiled it and pried the old pearl dots out of the old board and reinstalled them. Put that joker on. Did a little touch-up here and there around the edges of the neck because somebody had hosed it down with a lot of lacquer. And when the old board came off, there was some chipping around the, you know, the edges. I tried scoring it, but it, there was a lot of lacquer on that neck. So once I got the new board glued on, I had to do a lot of drop filling. And if you're, you know, conversant with guitar repair techniques, you know what that is. Filling it up, getting it higher than the surrounding area, and then sanding it off flat and then buffing it out. Anyway, got all that done. Strung that bad boy up, and that thing is playing in tune for the first time in I don't know how many years. And stuck that in a case. And moved on to the next project, which was a mandolin that I bought. And if you have watched my videos, if you've watched movable major and minor chords, I'm playing this mandolin. It's an Eastman 815. And I bought it as a backup because my flat iron was desperately in need of a fret job and I'm going to hand it off to Bob McIsaac to refret it. But I needed something to be playing in the meantime and I ran across this Eastman A15 and I was blown away by how good this thing sounded. That is an endorsement. This is a, this is a very early Eastman. It's a 2006 Eastman 815. It was not my flat iron, but it was pretty good. It was better than the Michael Kelly's that I had been singing, way better than a lot of the other things that my students would bring in, you know, fenders and stuff like that. This is before the lore hit the market. But it was one of the first Chinese mandolins that seemed to be built in the same way that Gibson used to build them. You know, they used like chisels and 
gouges and stuff, you know. I was pretty impressed. I was impressed enough to go, well, I could play this at a gig and it wouldn't be too horrible, you know. And I'll probably get better with time. So I had it. And my mandolin was in the shop, and I did a couple of videos for Watch and Learn playing that mandolin. And you may remember it because it had bound F-holes, which I didn't really like, but I guess they thought it was cool to put bound F-holes. It had bound F-holes, so that's how you can identify it in certain videos. I like. Let's put it this way. I like that mandolin well enough to buy it when I already had the 85 flat iron the Carlson. Anyway, I got talked out of it. One of my students playing some junky mandolin, he tried it out. Oh man, he just, oh, he's got to have that mandolin, you know, and it was a big step up for him. So sold this mandolin to this kid. His name is Hal. And uh, he played the snot out of that thing. And we ended up forming a little band called the Incorrigible String Band. He was pretty incorrigible, and so was his buddy, Corey. And we started playing, and I was playing bass with him. And this mandolin got a real workout and, and sounded better and better. Well, the mandolin had a hard shell case when it left my hands. It was put into a gig bag, and I don't know the details because I wasn't there, but the mandolin... And the mandolin player and a bicycle took a spill and crashed. And basically the handlebar went through the face of the mandolin and smashed a big hole in the face of the mandolin. Pretty much destroyed it. Well, I ran into his father, Bill Turpin. Um, I don't know, several years after this accident. And I was no longer playing with the guy and he had gotten him a new mantle and he got him a Gibson F nine or something. But the, the, uh, the old mantle that had gone through the crash, it just, it was like you took your fist and punched a hole right through the face of it, <laughs> right on the base side F hole. I will put a picture of this mandolin on the show notes page of today's episode, the before. And his father said, hey, you want this thing? Uh, you know, maybe you could use some parts off of it or something. There were no strings on it. The bridge was gone. But it had tuners and it had a tailpiece. And, you know, I looked at the the beautiful curly maple back and I was like, that's, a, you know, maybe maybe one day I could you know, make a new top for it. And he's like, here, just take it. Get it out of my face. You know, I guess it brought bad memories to him. You know, like, eh. you know, I helped my son get this mail on and he crashed it and wrecked it. You know, I don't know the, the logic, but he's like, here, take this thing. And well, it's hung on my wall in my staircase going to the upstairs of the house. It's been hanging on a nail uh, for, God, 10 years. Well, at this house, about seven. Just hanging there. And every time I walk by, I look at that hole and the face of that mail and the bashed out F hole. And I thought, I wonder if I could, maybe, I wonder if I could fix that. I could put a new top on it. Well, anyway, I got busy. I don't know why, just trying to, you know, 
tie up loose ends on things, and it just bugs me to see that hole. By the way, I strung that mailing up one time, and by some miracle, the tone bars were spared from the, the hole. In other words, the handlebar smashed through the F-hole, but did not break the base bar loose. And the treble side was pristine. It kind of it busted out some of the binding on the base side right there at the top of the, you know, between the scroll and the big hump. Kind of busted out the binding there, cracked the sides, and just took a big wad out of the top. Um, but as soon as you reached the base bar, it was intact from there over. And I thought, I wonder if I could just partially replace the top. Just cut away the ugly stuff and make just a, you know, like a third of a top. What if I could do that? Well, I did it. I set out. I took a piece of a Steinway soundboard, which I won't tell you how I got that, but it's from my old piano days. And I had some a lot of spruce stashed away from a Steinway that we replaced the board. All kind of scraps of spruce. And I picked one out and I fit it in a new piece to replace the bashed out section, glued it in from the top without disassembling it. Kind of wedge fitted it in. God, this thing. I, I, I spent way too much time on this thing. But I just couldn't stand to look at it anymore with a hole in it. I want a hole in it, but I want it to be an F-hole. You know, not a smashed out place you can stick your fist through you know so i did you ever tried carving the inside of a mandolin soundboard when you can't get inside the mandolin without taking it apart which i didn't want to do i figured it out yeah you know, i'm not gonna it would take me five hours to explain to you how i did this but i replaced that section of the soundboard and there are pictures of it I'll put them on the show notes page for this episode. You can see the the replacement parts in it. And you can see the F-hole before I cut the new F-hole. Anyway, I got all done. And I got to thinking that I have brought this mandolin back from the dead. I have resurrected this mandolin. It was alive and then it was killed in a bicycle crash. And I brought it back to life. And I have dubbed it the ghost mandolin. It's getting its second lease on life. And so I decided to make the top white. Because it would hide all that, all those ugly glue joints and stuff. And I gave it a white face, which is not an unusual thing in the mandolin world. There are white-faced mandolins. I kind of sort of wanted an ivory look. Anyway, it's done. And I strung it up yesterday. And it's just sitting there, hanging on the wall. I don't want to bring it up to pitch yet because I really want that, that lacquer to fully cure. So I'm going to give it a couple of two, three weeks. It's strung up just tight enough to hold the bridge in place, which I made the bridge too. I made the bridge out of a cherry tree. 
anyway, there's some pictures of that. And I made a YouTube video, which I'll embed on the show notes page. Jackson filmed me fitting the feet of the bridge to that mandolin. So that video exists. You can go take a look at that video. And when I actually string it up and play it again for the first time, for the second time, you should say, I should say, I will put a video uh, showing, you know, a full bunch of pictures, all the stages of resurrecting this mandolin. And the funny thing is, like I, I asked myself, why did I do this? I don't need a mandolin. You know, I don't. I've got a mandolin. I've got the mandolin of my dreams. I don't need this mandolin, but it just bothers me to see it sitting around unplayable. Well, it's not going to be unplayable anymore. And maybe, maybe this is your mandolin. Maybe, maybe you play in a gospel bluegrass group and the, the concept of a white mandolin appeals to you. You know, I don't know. Somebody's going to end up playing this mandolin again by hook or crook. And it will be because I took the time to uh, do what was necessary to bring it back from the dead. So that's the story of the ghost mandolin. I am approaching 40 minutes and I've got to stop yakking. So let's just go out of here, not with some bluegrass, but just a little composition by my son, Jackson Laird. You could call this the proud papa moment. And then this evening, I'll be over there listening to the Voices of the Valley. Google that. Google Voices of the Valley, Columbus, Georgia, and prepare to be amazed. Prepare to be amazed. It's uh, unbelievable. It's, you know... It's a rare moment when you're sitting in an audience and you're brought to tears by the emotional content of what you're hearing. That happens when I hear them sing. There's something about children's voices singing that gets way down deep into the reptilian brain or I don't know what happens, but it, uh, the emotional content of children's singing is very powerful. And uh, you might want to check that out. Check out Voices of the Valley. So here we go, closing the show out with Jackson's composition. And as I understand it, the title of this, the working title, is called We Will Go Far. This is composed by Jackson M. Laird and orchestrated by Jackson M. Laird, 10 years old.